This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry, you're getting real live insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? This is Dr. Nee, and I'm very excited because the first ever Docs Outside the Box virtual summit is finally here. This is day one. And I'm really excited. And listen, I want you over these next five days to be focused on the concept, the theme of more. I want you to get more out of your career. I want you to get more out of your personal life. And I want you to make 2020 your best year ever. Okay. So over these next five days, remember, I am bringing different doctors. I'm bringing different experts who are trendsetting, who are going to share some of the habits, some of the solutions some of the tricks of the trade that they've used to get past some of the mindset hiccups, all right? And we're going to be learning the power of more together during this event. And I want you to continue to help me build this movement of docs being more than just docs. Now, look, we've got a lot to get through. So, you know, I'm going to keep my introductions pretty short. This first guest is someone who literally is an OG, It's only fitting that she's my first guest for the show, and she's also the first guest that I have for this virtual summit. And that is Dr. Carmen Brown, who joins us all the way from the land down under. She's been spending her time working and living in Australia, as well as New Zealand. And her episode, which was episode one, till this day, is the highest downloaded episode for the podcast and really has been the spark that has helped this show gain traction with you all. The story was really great. And I suggest whenever you get a moment, make sure you go back to episode one and go ahead and, you know, take a listen to that if you haven't heard this episode before. But we're focusing on with her episode is realizing that when the status quo is unacceptable, what are you going to do? Okay. So now she is literally a 10-year veteran of living anywhere between Australia and New Zealand. And what we're going to talk about, the mindset hurdles that she and her husband got past in order to live life on their own terms. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I think oftentimes we get caught up on the quote unquote, what I should be doing is X, Y, and Z, or quote unquote, traditionally, this is how I should be living my life. But I think having those thought processes all the time, you know, we fail to realize that these thoughts prevent us from really finding true happiness. And for Dr. Carmen and her husband, in their case, Really, the true road to happiness was realizing that the status quo was unacceptable. 
So remember, this is going to be an episode on mindset hurdles. This is going to be an episode on getting past the status quo. And I want you to share this with someone who you really think would benefit from this. Make sure you register for this event at dotbsummit.com. And without further ado, I present Dr. Carmen Brown on the first day of the Docs Outside the Box Virtual Summit. Let's get it. Hey, Dr. Carmen, how are you all the way from Qatar we're talking from? We're actually in Qatar right now. That's right. I had a little bit of a family business to take care of. So I'm actually in a whole nother country now. <laughs> well, welcome back to the show. It's been over three years, close to four years since we last talked. You were my first guest. Till this date, the highest downloaded episode ever. Wow. Because people were really, <laughs> yes, seriously, you are the highest downloaded episode ever. People were really fascinated about your life, you and your husband's life, living overseas. And not just like overseas, but like you're all the way in Australia, 13 hours, 14, 15 hours away from the mainland of the United States and really thriving. Since then, you know, obviously the show has grown, but we're here to catch up with you, you know, to talk to you about a lot around mindset, you know, because that is really, I think for a lot of people, difficult to kind of wrap their mind to moving so far away from home. I kind of want to get like the step-by-step process, right, of how you decided to take that step, you and your husband to take that step to leave the United States and practice overseas and what those first couple of, you know, weeks and months were like. So first of all, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> welcome much. Welcome back. You know, welcome to the summit. Really excited. It's been roughly, what, close to nine, 10 years since you left the United States? Yeah, actually, yeah. I guess it depends on the way you count it. I did do a quick stint in between when I was pregnant with my little one, but Quite honestly, we were only back in the United States for maybe about 18 months. So if you really want to kind of ante it all up, it's been 10 years now. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, you know, if we go all the way back to 2010 and even a little bit before that, you were practicing, as we talked about on the first episode, you were practicing in Arizona, I believe, and, you know, just decided to take like this trip around the world with your husband. That's correct. And fell in love with Australia, New Zealand, that area. And then kind of just decided to make it home. So what was it like before you decided to take that trip? Tell me about your mindset. Where were you clinically? Where were you mentally? What kind of prompted you to take this trip? Honestly, at that point in our lives, I think it was a bit of the physician burnout. And of course, we've all seen, you know, articles and stuff about how we allow ourselves to kind of get run down mentally, physically, spiritually, trying to give 110% of ourselves when we know you don't have 100 and 10% to give to anybody. And I think the problem was, is that that's where we were as a couple. My husband was an anesthesiologist. He had his own practice and was literally, I think he was at six or seven different hospitals in the Phoenix area, also doing locums out of town. I was working on faculty in Phoenix and had a, I guess, a semi-decent schedule for an obstetrician. But I think the stress and the strain associated with obstetrics in the United States was one of those things that you just don't turn off. Even if you have a semi-decent schedule, it still stays with you. I think that we had reached the point where it was getting to the point that we were going to excess, trying to unplug and find happiness and joy. And it kind of goes back to the old adage, money can't buy you happiness. We were, you know, double income, didn't have children in the house at the time. And it was just like, yeah, let's just go to Vegas. Let's do this. But it just seemed like we were spinning our wheels and it was just a temporary release. But then you would be back to that pain on Monday, you know? 
I'm not laughing at you, but I think there's a lot of people listening right now. They're like, mm-hmm, preach. That's so I know exactly true. what you're you talking know? about. You like you try to give yourself that little moment of pleasure, but that pain is just sitting right there, you know, just knocking at the door. And after a while, I think we both realize that we're not doing anything that's making us happy. Literally, we're working and we're working, but we don't really have a goal. We don't have a joy. We don't have anything that really gives us that release other than traveling. That was the only thing that we found true joy in at the time. But the way the setup is in the United States. You can't even do that, not with the traditional work role as a physician. I had, I think, three weeks of vacation with my hospital and my husband being a self-owned you know, business, he could kind of do what he wanted. So he was a little bit more flexible. But prior to that, he was working with a group and he only had you know, two weeks of vacation, anything more than that. He had to buy his own locum. So things like that you know, put that pressure on you. It doesn't give you that flexibility. And then you start feeling trapped. And I don't think any adult especially after you've done, you know, medical school and residency and done that rigors and everything it takes to become a physician to find out that you are literally stuck, you know? So I think just trying to break that shackle. <laughs> I think it's crazy. Like, let's flush that out a little bit. Like that feeling of being stuck, you know, like you are one of the most highly educated people on the planet, right? Like you went through uh -huh. all these different hoops and hurdles and then you know, to have that feeling of feeling trapped. It's just like, talk to us more about that. Like, what did that feel like? I'm gonna let you take it from here because I know people who talk about it, but sometimes you like, you got to hear about it, kind of know right. that visceral right. feeling. What does that feel like? It actually, it feels like you're broken. You know, you're broken inside because it feels like, you know, those years when you were studying so hard and everyone kept telling you, you know, you just do good on this test and you'll make it and, you know, patting you on the back because you graduated from med school and ooh, we, I matched, I got a residency. You kind of almost feel like, you're doing a disservice to your ancestors and those people that were rooting for you because you're not happy. But the problem is, is that you have to realize it's okay not to be happy. Yes, it's a wonderful thing that you've achieved, but you're still a human being. You still deserve other outside interest and happiness and those types of things. And so I think the problem is when we were in our job, specifically me, because I was the employed physician at the time, what I found really difficult is that I thought the vacation was really woefully inadequate and quite honestly ridiculous. Not only did I only have three weeks of vacation, but there were stipulations on how I took it. So I was, there's no, what are you talking about? yes, yes. So I found out after the fact that my job did not really want us to take two weeks, you know, kind of back to back. You could not do that. That was like a no, no. You could take one week here and you could take one week there, but you could not take two consecutive weeks. And at the time, once again, we really found that travel was really a nice release for us. And so we had decided we were going to try to do a big, wonderful international trip every single year. And only having three weeks of vacation, that's really difficult, you know, and <laughs> to try to squeeze in a nice international trip halfway across the world. That's not really that realistic. I just start to feel like a hamster in a wheel, like I'm running and I'm running and I'm not getting anywhere and I'm not doing anything to bring me joy. There's nothing in that wheel. It's just more spokes in the wheel, you know? Did you ever have thoughts of kind of moving back, pulling yourself back from medicine while you were in the States? The reason I ask is, is like, how did you get to that point where you're like, you know what? We need to take a trip and we're going to do this for a year. Where did you get to that point? So I think it was that feeling that we got when we did get a chance to go on those trips, when you were really unplugged for that amount of time. And these weren't long trips. Like literally what we did was we stayed up all our vacation. We always, always, always went around Thanksgiving or Christmas so you can kind of add on those little extra days so you'd have like a whole like, ooh, nine days off type of thing. 
you know, just being off that amount of time, unplugging from that matrix from that amount of time just gave me such an amazing peacefulness that I didn't ever think I could have. And it was sad because I felt like I missed medicine and I still wanted to do that. But another part of me wanted to give it up and just walk away because I knew I should be feeling that way in my normal life. And so at that point, that's when I started thinking, you know, like there has got to be a way to incorporate these two feelings, to unplug, to actually have joy in your work again, and to figure out how to make it all come together. Like, you know, you see on TV or what you always thought it was going to be like when you were a child. And so I actually sat down, my husband and I are listers. We like to sit down with lists. Like if you ever go through our stuff, you'll see like, Literally, when we start thinking about residency and where we should go to residency, we did pro and con list and, you know, that type of thing. So right. we sat down, started writing out what really made us unhappy about our jobs and our lives and what brought us joy. And it was a very, very long list on the unhappy side and very, very short on the joy side. And so, you know, we were like, you know what? We need to seriously rethink how we're working and maybe we can figure something else out. And so... At the time, we were just like, you know, we were really financially stable. We didn't have any significant, you know, huge debt aside from, you know, the usual Sally Mae kind of thing. But it was just one of those things where you're like, you know what, it's now or never. Might as well do it. We're physicians. We could find jobs again some other time, somewhere else. Let's just do it. And that was it. Wow. When you say just do it, this is let's take a year kind of trip around the world. And during this time, you did not plan to do any clinical work whatsoever? None. So it was actually going to be, we were thinking about a year, but we actually condensed it to six months because we found jobs while we were traveling. So the catalyst for this really was our last international trip, which was Australia, New Zealand. And we went there in December, 2009. And literally we're just like, oh my goodness, like people actually live like this. And I think the similarities with the countries is that's what made it so like in your face. Like these are English speaking Commonwealth nations. It's like being at your grandma's house is similar. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's not your house, but it's similar. It was that kind of feeling like, you know, I could live here. This reminds me of everything I'm used to. And then the people and their ethos and the way they approached work and life and family, and those types of things, it just kind of got to you. It was like, it just stuck in your soul. And you were like, you know what? I really feel like I could do this. I could be here and live here halfway across the world. And so that's when we actually started seeking out locums companies. And we were still traveling at the time, but we actually were offered positions about five months into our travels and decided to just cut our trip, <laughs> come on home, pack some stuff up and then move across the world. <laughs> okay. So let me play devil's advocate for a little bit. Cause while you're there, it's like, look, like, I don't know if you experienced or got a chance to meet any other expatriates out there, but it's just like, it's Australia, it's New Zealand, like it's 13 hours away. Like, yeah, I mean, there's yeah, that thing is. that you got to get past. There's the practicing, you know, overseas. What if it's a little bit different than how yes. I practice in the United States? You know, what are other people going to think? Like, how'd you get past all that? Like, talk to us about that. I mean, it's a big deal just to be like, it yo, I'm out. I'm just going to yeah. practice. <laughs> exactly, I'm just going to practice exactly. in Oceania. Yeah. I think part of the thing was, is that one of the things that made it less I guess frightening for me is I think the lack of language barrier. Like, I am not going to lie. I would think, you know, practicing in the Netherlands or Sweden or somewhere where you actually had to learn a language would be a lot more daunting. And I don't think I would have jumped as easily. Going somewhere that's an English speaking country, I knew that was one barrier I was not going to have to overcome. And then culturally, I didn't feel like it was that much of a difference. And I found out 
after the fact, it is a lot of a difference. And I'll tell you about that later. But I just thought from like, you know, the language standpoint and the fact that these are developed nations with, you know, excellent healthcare, I didn't think it was going to be that, you know, big of a deal. The distance thing, I was like, you know, that's why God made airplanes. You know, I was just like, I got here to visit. Somebody else can come and visit me or I can go home. And that was just it. So I didn't really think of that too much as a barrier. And honestly, I think that was the one thing that we didn't really tease out and think about as much until after we got there and started like actually living that expat life. And there were a lot of expats there. There's a ton of Americans in New Zealand, less so interesting in Australia, which is really odd. I'm not really sure how that is or why that is. But there's a lot of us in New Zealand, like a lot of us. And I joined every Facebook expat Australia, New Zealand, American group that you can think of and, you know, met some really good people, people that I'm actually really good friends with to this day. Yeah. So just kind of getting those resources, hearing from other people. There's so many different groups of expats, types of expats. It's funny. We actually even have our own subdivisions, you know, the expats that come fall in love <laughs> deeply for like exactly 24 months and then they go home, pack up and go home. And then you have the people that are, you know, like the lifelongers, the ones that have been there for like 28, 35 years. And you can't even tell if they have an accent anymore, or, you know, that kind of thing. So we got a chance to meet everyone and everyone has a very different story, but it's really weird. I really do believe that, you know, that gene that they talk about, that wanderlust gene, I think it was like the DR something gene that they talked about, but they said there's a gene that makes some of us want to wander and to travel and to do exciting experiences. And I really started to believe like that is probably really what defines certain people's personalities. Cause I think I found a lot in common with people who are over here that are Americans and expats. Versus, you know, just people that I would notice, you know, no back home in Atlanta. You know, I honestly have more contact with some, common with some of these people here than people I grew up with or, you know, have known for 20, 30 years from back home. From my perspective, it seems like there really isn't many limiting beliefs that you have, like that kind of hold you back. Like you are very practical in how you think about things. Obviously, you have a pro and con list. And, you know, obviously there's a lot more, you know, beyond that in terms of planning to go as far away as what you did. But to me, from my perspective, it seems like these self-limiting ideas, you're not really bound by them. I think it's also about, quite honestly, it could be a level of selfishness. I think it's also about self-preservation too. Like in my mind, where I was in my obstetric careers, I think I was almost as low as you could go to the point where, you know, you didn't want to go to work and, you know, just every day was a horrible drag. And the saddest thing is, is I love, love, love what I do. I love taking care of moms and babies and continuity that affords me. But the stress and the medical legal aspect and the insurance companies and dealing with all those types of dramas, it like sucked every bit of joy out of the good stuff, you know? So even those like fleeting moments, you know, those wonderful outcomes with your moms and babies and people bringing their kids back to see you when they came and turned a year old, that kind of thing, that moment would be stolen so fast by the insurance company that you were on the phone with four hours battling for something a patient truly needed. And so you just can't keep going like that, or at least I couldn't keep going like that. And so for me, I think it was really more of a self-preservation thing. Yes, I'm far away from my family and my friends and my base. But in my mind, I was like, I can't continue living every day like this to see you on this. You know what I'm saying? It's just to me, I was like, I can't do this every single day of my life, just so I could see you Thanksgiving on a three-hour plane flight from Phoenix. That's deep. Sounds bad, but it's true. <laughs> it's survival. 
it's really interesting because I'd like to know, like, if you had a chance to pinpoint exactly what do you think, you know, kind of saved your career and your kind of your mindset and your perspective on this, like, do you think it's the traveling that helped more? Or was it literally that self-preservation mindset that said something's got to change, right? Because to me, I look at it as two different things. You said something's got to change and then I'm going to go and travel. And it just so happened that this whole opportunity opened up once you started traveling. Do you look at it that way at all or? I think you're very right. I think it is two things that happen to come together perfectly. But you're right. There's two separate things at hand, because quite honestly, even if the idea of like, oh, I could work overseas hadn't materialized, I would have definitely changed something significant about the way I practiced. I would have been out of clinical medicine, probably doing something very academic or non-clinical just to give me that mental break and reset. But it wouldn't have made me truly happy because once again, I love the clinical aspect of medicine. So I would have had to give something up and I would have just been basically, you know, puttering along until I was, you know, okay, I'll just retire now type of thing. So that wouldn't have been a win. That would have been defeat. You know what I'm saying? So it's like almost like putting wallpaper on, you know, a wall that needed construction or needed paint. You're just covering up something, but underneath, you know, what you truly are is really going to come out. Exactly. Exactly that. Honestly, I think it was just wonderful that I was able to like literally put two and two together. Like, okay, I still want to do medicine. I hate the way I have to do it here. Hey, here's a whole nother country that seems kind of familiar. Ooh, I could be a doctor there. (laughs) So, Well, since you kind of have a little bit of a segue going into practicing overseas now, I'm really interested because there are people who want to know. And I know you're working on something that's coming up. Yes, yes. I am tiptoeing in the edge. You're so close to finishing and self-publishing my book about exactly this. And I definitely give thanks to you and several other physicians out there that reached out to me asking me, like, how exactly did you do this and do the steps? And after a while, it was literally a cut and paste kind of thing. And I felt like, okay, now I'm starting to not be very, you know, one-on-one personable with people. But it was so many phone calls and texts and emails and everything that I was literally just cutting and pasting because it got to be that much. <laughs> Basically, everybody's like, how can I be down? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, I decided, I was like, you know what, I have this information. And by that point, I had not one, but now two countries under my belt. So I was like, you know what, you know, that's something kind of special and cool. Maybe I should sit down and write about, you know, how you can make this happen, how you can make this, you know, possible dream or reality. What's the biggest question that people ask you? They've asked literally all the ones you have. Everyone's coming from a different perspective. Like, you know, some people ask me what made me want to do it. Other people ask me, like, you know, actually, how did you execute? Like, how do you find a job? Other people ask about, you know, just the idea of just doing something short, like, you know, dipping your toe into the water and say, you know, if I want to do, you know, three, six or nine months or a year, how do I do that? So I think everybody comes from like a different perspective, but I get lots and lots of questions about just that whole how and why kind of aspect. And now a word from our sponsor. Meet Dr. Arthur Cummings. He's a busy ophthalmologist practicing all the way in Dublin, Ireland. Recently, he finished physician CEO. Check out what got him to jump on the transatlantic flight to participate in this program. My initial response would simply be just do it. This is one of those programs that is so good. It's very likely to be the best education you've ever received. And you realize then as a physician, how little we really know about our businesses, even though we're running businesses that are quite large. And the level of training is so fantastic. The education is so good. The faculty is 
immaculate and you're in a group of people who are like-minded. So just the entire environment is an amazing learning experience and really a good incubator for growing your practice. So if you're a physician who's looking to start your own venture or even lead your practice or department, then you can't afford to miss this opportunity. Class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. So how did you develop like or find like your first job? Because like you said, you were there just to travel, right? Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about that. What is it like? People don't know that there are locums companies that work overseas. Yes, yes, yes. I think that now, quite honestly, people probably know a little bit more than we did. Because, you know, 10 years ago, there was a very different internet, different search engines, different everything. So these days, I think people are a little bit more kind of hip to the game. But there's a huge burgeoning field of like overseas locum companies, places that are based in the United States that specialize in, you know, placing people overseas. And it's not just Australia and New Zealand. Like people don't realize that there's places that will place you you know, in the Middle East and in Asia and, you know, Europe, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different options that are out there. What I've learned from the experiences is that my first job, we did use a locum company to go through New Zealand. And I do believe that's a total personal decision for anyone, whether or not they want to use a company or not. But I have found that I would not necessarily recommend that just off the bat, you know, for anyone, for everyone kind of thing. And the reason why is because I think we underestimate ourselves on what we can do. You're a physician, for goodness sake. You've got state licenses, hospital credentials, and all these types of things. You know, you filled out applications from the time that you were trying to get the MCAT. You know, so you know how to fill out an application. It's not rocket science. So the fact that you want to pay somebody, you know, $40,000, $50,000 to fill out an application that you actually kind of fill out on your own because you actually fill it out. And then you send it back to them and they submit it. It just kind of boggles my mind why you would do that. So I just kind of think, especially for... And the numbers that you mentioned, that's actually pretty realistic. <laughs> you are yes, literally paying them that you much money just to get them to fill out paperwork. You are paying person dollars to put those cute little, you know, fluorescent tabs that says sign here on your papers. That's what you just <laughs> paid for. So, I mean, the thing is, is that I think you underestimate yourself. If you're going to an English speaking country... I really don't see why you would really want to just spend that money unless there's extenuating circumstance that's going to be like really, really difficult. You know, I had a friend that came over with five kids. That's an extenuating circumstance. I could see how that could be literally and technically beyond difficult. So I can understand there's going to be some circumstances where it might just be willing to pay someone to say, here, take that money, go ahead and just help me out. If you're going somewhere that's non-English speaking, that's going to be really, really hard. I wouldn't even begin to know how to kind of help and instruct you through that situation. But I'm thinking like if you're going somewhere where it's just going to be plain old Queen's English on the application, you could probably just do it yourself. I love that. I love that. Who do you think had the hardest time transitioning? Do you think anybody within your immediate family or did like your extended family or intermediate family have a hard time, you know, just knowing that you're not in Atlanta anymore? Like you said, like, most yeah, of your family is very closely. Yeah. What were your thoughts and your experiences on that? It was really hard. I think you'll definitely, I mean, if you talk to my siblings and stuff like that, you'll definitely get, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's actually funny and kind of sad that when you actually sat down and think about it, when we were in New Zealand, I'd actually spent more time 
like with my mother during holidays and just visiting than I did when I was living in the United States. And that's just because, once again, you don't have a lot of vacation time. So my trips back to Atlanta were limited to maybe one, if I was lucky, two a year, maybe type of thing. So that's not a lot, you know, and you're still in the same country as they are. So when I moved overseas, having more vacation and more flexibility actually allowed me to see my mother for a lot longer. So I would fly her out to New Zealand. She would stay for, you know, three months at a time. So it actually extended the quality time that I actually got to spend with her. And um, actually, that extended to my sister, too. I had a sister that came to visit me in New Zealand twice. And both times we spent like, you know, a whole week together, which was more than I'd spent with her when I was working in Phoenix, which, you know, is still mind boggling. It makes no sense. I'm overseas and I'm spending more time with my family now. (laughs) I think where it got a little bit harder for everyone is when we had our son. That's when I think everyone was like, well, hey, there's a whole new human that we want to be a part of his life. And you're nowhere near us. And that's when it started to get really, really tricky. Initially, our plan was, was we were going to go home with him every six months, which we actually did initially. And that wasn't too much of a problem until he got to the terrible twos. And it was like, "Eh, not going (laughs) to, I told them in jest that that they weren't going to see him. I know, right? I told them in jest at the last flight, we flew back from New Zealand back to the United States. And it took us Oh my God, it was just the most horrible thing. And he was two years old and that was the worst trip ever. And I told everyone, I was like, you won't see this boy again until he's seven. And (laughs) he hasn't been home since then. I was serious. It was such a horrible trip with a two-year-old on a 14-hour flight. So that's when we started being like, oh my God, hey, uh uh-oh, what do we do kind of thing. So, and you know, once again, it kind of goes back to that argument. I have a really good life with my son and I'm very present in his life, which I know that the type of jobs I'd had, I would never have this type of flexibility and ability with him. And so I just cannot, now I have even more at stake. Now I have a whole nother little human being that I want to take care of and I want to raise. And the idea of giving this up just to go closer it just, I can't do it. I like, I can't do it. I just kind of feel like my everyday mommy time and family time with him is more important than your birthdays, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving time. Once again, it sounds kind of selfish, but I am, you know, I'm one of the parents. I have to raise this person to be a good member of society. I have to do that. If I'm not around, I can't do that. And I'm not going to give this lifestyle up just to try to make proximity work. And I just, yeah, that's just the way I think. I've had differing of opinions with friends and family and everything. And sometimes even arguments where they say, oh, but you need a village, you need this, that, and the other. And I was like, yeah, but you need your parents too. (laughs) Right, right. You don't need your parents to be exhausted or angry or frustrated or, you know, burnt out or trying to do charts when you're supposed to be helping them with homework. You know, it's just, that's not the same thing. You're pretending it is, but it's not the same thing. I think that might be the last part of kind of breaking that physician mindset in the United States where, you know, it's just work, 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 work. And then, like you said, like as a physician, you're not really, or even as a physician and as a woman, this thought process of trying to get back to work as soon as possible kind of supersedes, like you said, the thought of being more balanced and being a great physician, but also at the same time being a great mom. It's really frowned upon to kind of do both or to spend more time with your child and stuff. So, it just seems like that was like the last drag, the last thing that you needed to break. And 
I'm so glad you did it because I think it makes a lot of sense. Like, what's your legacy going to be? Is your legacy going to be what you're doing in the hospital or is your legacy going to be a combination of what you're doing, not only in the hospital, but more importantly, what you're doing for your children, for your name and things like that. So that's pretty awesome. I'm glad that you brought that up because, you know, that's one thing that I struggle with, you know, is what is going to be said about me? What's going to be my legacy? And I oftentimes, now that I have children, you know, I look at them being my legacy now, or even this podcast, even the podcast, the podcast is my legacy. And I do feel like I get a chance to take care of people on a one-by-one basis, which is amazing. But at the same time, I feel like my legacy will be that much more bigger based off of this podcast or based off of my children. You know, so kudos to you for recognizing that. Thank you. And to you too. And it's the hard thing because sometimes you do feel like you have to overcome that selfishness. But, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with being selfish when it comes to, you know, your family, your mental, spiritual and health well-being. Like to me, I think it's one of those things that I don't have a problem with putting high on my priority list. Do you ever feel like you had to compromise when you went overseas? You were forced to kind of do either or. And if so, or if not, like what were the things that you did to kind of push back against that, if you did at all? Well, I guess from the compromise perspective, like I said, after I realized that it's like cruel and unusual punishment to drag a toddler onto a plane for, you know, 24 hours for like a two week trip. Now I realized that, you know, there's going to have to be, you know, a significant change in how we see family, how we utilize family time. I realized that things, you know, technology is going to be really important doing Skype and things like that were going to be really important versus that no one-on-one actual physical time. What about like clinically, even clinically? I'm sorry, that's what I meant, like clinically. Oh, clinically, I'm sorry. Did you ever have that feeling or did they ever give you that feeling from a clinical standpoint? Like, look, you know, this is how we do things or is it completely different than how we are in the States? I think it's specialty dependent. I have American friends here that are working in different specialties. I have friends in surgery, internal medicine, emergency medicine. And everybody has a little bit of a different perspective on what's different and how it's different, how it was hard for them to work into those constraints or not. I think for most of us, all of us can agree that we find there's definitely less stress working, a lot less stress. And I think that taking that burden off, no matter what your specialty is, is most of the battle is just gone. It's just so much better. Just taking that huge chunk away makes you work differently, makes you feel differently about work, which translates to how you feel when you get home from work, the amount of energy you have to devote to other things outside of work. Like people have hobbies, like all my friends have hobbies, they do stuff. (laughs) It's not like little hobbies, it's actually stuff they can dedicate true time to, which, you know, honestly, I just don't really find that usually with a lot of full-time working physicians back home, you know? I found clinically, for me as an obstetrician gynecologist, there were some clinical like nuances. Little, I wouldn't say huge things, but there were some things that I had to get used to. I definitely had to kind of brush up on the Royal Australia, New Zealand college's way of doing things. But it wasn't like a huge like, oh my God, I have to go back to residency and relearn everything. I found that in some ways they're more advanced. In other ways, I felt like they were still not kind of up to quote what we were doing in the United States. But overall, the patients had the same, if not better, outcomes than we have in the United States. So 
even if I looked at something like, oh my God, that's not what we do. I can't, as a physician working on evidence-based medicine, say, well, that doesn't work because I'm looking at these living, breathing people who are having great outcomes saying, oh, well, I guess it does work. Hmm." (laughs) So I don't think it was like our way or the highway type of thing. But of course, you know, these are autonomous countries. You know, you can't come over spouting what your American college says or does, because that's not how they do things. You have to appreciate and understand that they have their own colleges and their own rules and guidelines. So you are expected to adapt to those. I see that a lot when I do medical humanitarian work. When we go to a different country, you know, there's people who bring, you know, like you said, the United States way of thinking, which is very advanced and it's very good. But oftentimes you really have to adapt to what you have because, you know, if you bring the latest and greatest, but it's not sustainable for the providers there, as well as for the patients from an affordability standpoint, then what are you really doing here? Although obviously you're in Australia and New Zealand where, you know, they have a lot of resources, but sometimes, like you said, like they do things just as well, if not better. Right. We don't overutilize things. I mean, I think that's what I've learned in my years here is we don't overutilize things like. I just think that because we practice so defensively back home, we order sometimes way more double, you know, the amount of labs and tests and stuff like that, that we would never order here. And it's kind of like more stepping back into that old school clinical role. Like everyone's had that old attending that would say, oh, when I, my day, we used to taste the blood with our pinky finger, you know, that kind of thing. You'd be like, right, 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 right. It's almost like that where you're actually relying on true clinical acumen. You're like, okay. Let's look at this patient, this whole patient. What exactly do we think is going on and what will that test truly yield us? And if it's not going to give you anything, then don't do it. You know, it's just this really makes sense. It really does. And you're not practicing so defensively. That's why their healthcare spending is so much less than ours. So there are definitely some things that we could learn from here. But, you know, when you try to tell somebody back home that sometimes they get in their feelings. (laughs) Right, right. That's the nice way of saying it. Speaking of spending, is it possible to live where you're living in Australia or, you know, living in New Zealand and kind of just have like an okay lifestyle? Like as a physician, like, do you see like the lifestyle creep that you see in the United States, the big cars, the big, you know, expensive things? Once again, it depends. I think in New Zealand and some of the smaller towns, absolutely not. Most of us, like you would not ever tell was a physician who was not because most of us had like the beat up, you know, off wheel drive cars because we were always going hiking, biking, fishing type of thing. So it wasn't that huge delineation of wealth. But I think that's a cultural thing because it's New Zealand and it's like the most beautiful place on earth. So I think that's probably had something to do with it. Now in Australia, Australia's just like back home. I found that this place is a lot more like back home, but without the horrible, significant, unnecessary stress to the point that we do back home. But There are definitely some super high earners here. Like, you know, we joke and say, oh, that's the Maserati lot at, you know, certain hospitals, because I think it's like a requirement for most private doctors here to get a Maserati. I'm not sure, but it seems like that. (laughs) But there is definitely that cohort of people that do the whole private practice, big house kind of thing, which is totally fine. Then you have, of course, you have your public doctors, you know, who are, you know, still doing really, really well, you know, the top 1% earners in the country, but don't necessarily have the huge amounts that they're going to want to spend on luxury items like, you know, the Bentleys and the Maseratis and stuff like that. You can definitely have an excellent lifestyle here as a physician, and it will put you in the top 10, if not 1% of earners. It is different in New Zealand. You are still going to be a high earner in New Zealand, but physicians do make less in New Zealand than they do in Australia. 
But that's one of the things I touch on in my book is that this is the part where it gets really, really individualized and you truly have to sit down with your significant other or if you do have anybody, but you have to sit down and be true to yourself and think about this. You have to look at all aspects of this. Is this going to be something I'm doing long term or is this just dipping my toe in the water? Am I going to still have bills and stuff in the United States or I'm going to completely and utterly divest where I don't have anything? You know, you have to look at your lifestyle, your current level of spending, you know, public, private schools, all that kind of stuff has to go into the mix. And it's a hard equation. Like it's going to take some serious time, soul search and paperwork and that kind of thing to figure out all those little aspects of to figure out if it's going to be similar to what you had in the United States. Or are you planning on just doing something totally different and going like bear grills off the grid kind of thing? And if you're doing that, that's fine. That's a whole different thing. But if you're trying to compare apples to apples, it's going to be hard. It's hard to compare apples to apples because they're not. The best I can tell you is you're comparing like a mandarin to a nectarine kind of thing. You know, it's like they're kind of similar in a way, but not quite really kind of thing. It's just one of those things that you're not going to get that true on comparison. So you have to kind of figure out if this is going to work for you. I was going to say, I think that's the number one question a lot of people ask me. And that's the one that drives me nuts because that goes to show you that as physicians, most of us are really, really poor business people. And we're not really good with numbers sometimes. And that drives me nuts because I'm going to be, I'll put my hand up and tell you, I was the person who didn't balance her check, but ooh, this is tell my age because I'm telling you about balancing checkbooks. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> back when we had checkbooks, I didn't balance my checkbook. I would bounce things sky high because I would forget that I wrote a check at Kroger or something like that. And then you just, it would, you know, it would be a mess. I was terrible with finances because I just did not pay attention, nor did anyone sit me down as a younger woman and tell me about investments and you know balancing your checkbook and paying things and emergency funds and stuff like that. I just never got that education. And so I think as physicians, we think because we're so smart and have higher education that we are automatically good business people, but no, we're not. So when you're looking at these packages, these opportunities and everything, that's why I said you're not comparing apples and oranges because if you're looking at your job in the United States where you're working, you know, 60 hours a week plus you're charting at home, maybe an additional 10 hours a week, you know, you're just looking at your US dollar American salary, but you're not calculating your actual hours of work. And so when you start looking at these New Zealand, Australia opportunities, and then you're doing that dollar conversion, because that's what I've had people do me. They say, you know, do you make good money? I was like, I make excellent money as a physician here. I make more than I made in the United States. And then they automatically try to call me to the carpet. That's not possible. I just calculated Australian dollars, 69 cents to the U.S. dollar, blah, blah, blah. And they'll go through this whole calculation with me and just tell me one for one what the dollar is. And I'm sitting there You're like, You're talking about okay. a different game. Yeah, I'm like, I'm sitting there like, okay, I get it. But I only had two, three weeks of vacation. And here I have six weeks. And there I only had $2,000 of CME. And here I have $25,000. Like, you are seriously totally not doing the same type of math. You got to sit down and seriously look at all these things. You mentioned before about there are some people who, when they leave, or one of the things to consider, like, are you completely leaving the United States and are you living overseas where you have like no land or anything like that over back in back at home? So when you decided to make that move, did you still like maintain a United States address or were you guys like, we're done to find us? We are in New Zealand at the time. Initially, we were like, oh, we're done, but we still kept. Well, we didn't actually have a U.S. address because we did sell our house, but 
we had a U.S. mailing address. So like we like set up something at one of the like, you know, post office shops or whatever. That was pretty much it. So we were pretty much like, yeah, we're done because we really thought we were going to do this, you know, full term forever. And it just so happened that it's, you know, it's worked out for us. But I do know people that said, oh, we're going to stay forever. And then they end up going back after a couple of years. And that's fine, too. And then I also know people that have maintained residences and, you know, rental properties and stuff back home, which, you know, that's a whole nother set of like things that you have to kind of consider because then you do still have to look at how's that U.S. dollar performing against the New Zealand or Australian currency, because that makes a difference with when you're sending money home and paying those bills back home. So you have to, you know, look at those and take those into consideration. For us, we fully divested. We didn't have anything at all as far as property, houses, you know, credit cards or anything in the United States. So for us, it was like our whole lives are now here. Wow. Any regrets at all? Let's see. Timing-wise, my biggest regret is time-wise. I really wish we shouldn't have come home the very first time that we did. So we did a one-year locum. Really? Yeah. So when we left and got our jobs, we got our jobs in New Zealand. That was about June 2010, I believe. Yeah, June 2010, we got our jobs in New Zealand. And it was a one-year full-time locum for both of us. At the end of the locum, the hospital offered us a permanent position. And we thought about it and thought about it. And we decided not to take it because we didn't want to stay in that city. And we thought it was disingenuous because the hospital had been you know, really good to us and we made some really good friends. But we thought it would be disingenuous to just say, yeah, we'll take the job permanently and then just bounce the minute we found something better. And that's honestly what we would have done. We didn't think that was going to be fair to them. So we just decided to you know, be truthful. No, thank you. We're going to keep looking. And we kept looking and just could not find anything and so eventually we had to like the fairy tale had to come to an end. And so we ended up having to pack up and go back to the United States. It took us like six months to find something else in New Zealand. So we were in the United States for we like six months and I found something again in New Zealand and we were all ready to jump and take it. And that's when I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> ah, gotcha. Life happens. In hindsight, that's my biggest regret because the thing I always think about is that had I stayed in New Zealand, I would have had a one-year maternity leave with my son, which <laughs> is the biggest thing that I like. Every time I think about it, it makes me slightly nauseous because, you know, I have a friend right now. She's just started her one-year maternity leave. Her husband gets five-month paternity leave. They have extraordinary... Wow. five months. Yeah, he gets a five-month, and that's through his company. But normally, I believe the paternity leave is, I think, two or three months here. But it doesn't really matter. That's a lot longer than what you normally get. <laughs> like two, three months is still longer than what you normally get. That's maternity leave. Maternity leave is a year. And, you know, it's just to me, I was just like, man, I wish I had that opportunity. And so when I think about what actually happened, that I was in the United States, you know, ended up having a horrible, complicated pregnancy, cesarean section, and then went right back to work eight weeks after I had a cesarean section. You even and take I the full 12 it, weeks. Yeah, well, that wasn't really an option for me. <laughs> so, wow. You see, that's what I'm saying. It's just that that's the kind of thing in the United States. You were bullied into coming back type of thing early because it was like, you know, your patients need you, you know. So I think that would be my biggest regret is that I wish at it. Of course, I didn't know there was going to be, you know, my little one coming in, in the future. But had I known, <laughs> I would have stayed in New Zealand. I would have been a citizen. He would have been a citizen. I'd have gotten a year of maternity leave. Life would have been amazing. So 
it still is really good, but I wish I had that time back then. No, no, I understand. Well, look, Dr. Carmen, this was amazing. This was excellent. How are we going to be able to keep up with you to make sure that when that book comes out, <laughs> yes, we're yes, going to be ready yes. to pick it up? So what's the best way for people to kind of keep in contact with you to even just follow up with you and see how you're doing? Currently, I have two projects I'm working on. So the best way is, is that I actually have a blog. It's about, so that's the other part of my life. So my little one was diagnosed with autism when he was two and a half. So that led us to our change from New Zealand to Australia. So a lot of people always ask me, they're like, wait, I heard you and you were in New Zealand. And now you're in Australia. What happened? Did you not like New Zealand? And honestly, that's the exact opposite. We love New Zealand. And it tore me to pieces to leave my job in that country. I loved my job there. But we ended up moving because we needed more resources and things for my son. We were in a cute little country town and really far away from pretty anything that was really going to be helpful for him as far as early intervention. And so we opted to moved to the, quote, big city, which we did. And so now we're in the big city of Melbourne. And I literally lucked up and landed with two feet into an awesome job that I actually love, too. So I love this job, too. So it's just, it's been really, really wonderful. But I have a blog that I keep. You can look me up on that. So it's Autism Doctor Mom. So it talks a little bit about my role as a wife, a mother, a physician, and having a little one on the spectrum. So I do also have a website with the same name. And when I do launch my book, I'll definitely put some links on there. And I will also have a social media presence set up, which I'm still working on. But I'll definitely make sure I touch bases with you so you can pop it on your site. Absolutely. This was awesome. You know, I got a question for you. One last question. Sure. So there are a lot of people right now who are listening and they either know someone or it's them themselves who are like sitting on the fence. They're not sure if they should take this big jump. And they need some advice, possibly. Like, what do you say to people? I call them half steppers. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to them who's either sitting on a fence or they're not sure and they're waiting and time is ticking, right? What do you say yeah, to those folks to get them motivated to take action? I would definitely say that you have to be honest with yourself. You truly have to take a look at why you would want to make the change and whether or not it's feasible for you. The other thing I would say is, is time is ticking and it's an explosion of people that have expatriated, especially American physicians. And it was that we were just unique unicorns. But now it's not too uncommon to see some American doctors here and there. So, you know, eventually it's not going to be something that's going to be easy to find in the future. So I'm really saying to, I guess, the people out there who are kind of on the fences is that, you know, if you are considering it, do that research, take that first step, reach out, get those resources done, do some reading. Because, you know, it's something that you really want to do sooner rather than later. Dr. Carmen, thank you so much for your knowledge, for inspiring me to keep going with my podcast and maybe eventually yes. take that step to go overseas. Because me and my wife, actually, we did New Zealand and Australia and Bali for our honeymoon, and we absolutely loved it. So for those Yay! who are wondering why she keeps talking about it, like Australia and New Zealand is like that. It is amazing. <laughs> it is. It like is. I said, people really find your story inspiring. I will make sure that I put all the links to follow you on the show notes. You know, you are the bomb. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This has been a really good whirlwind. <laughs> and I'm so happy for your podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. It wouldn't have been as popular if it wasn't for you just actually setting the foundation. So thanks, Nia. I appreciate it.